Welcome to Sunlight Connections, a homeschool podcast. In this podcast, we hope that you get the opportunity to connect with other homeschoolers for encouragement, tips, and fellowship. Like Sunlight's curriculum offerings, we explore homeschooling through the lens of a literature-rich, Christ-centered education. Join us on this adventure. In the summer of 2022, Sunlight hosted our annual Sunlight Connections Homeschool Summit. We were honored to have Amber O'Neill Johnston of Heritage Mom Blog and the author of A Place to Belong present on the importance of blending quality literature with an inclusive atmosphere. Listen in to learn how books provide both mirrors and windows to the world around us. I am Amber O'Neill Johnston from Heritage Mom. I live outside of Atlanta, Georgia with my husband, Scott, and our four kids. Um, They are 12, 10, 8, and 6. And I write and speak about culturally inclusive curriculum for children at both home and school with an emphasis on history, literature, music, poetry, and art. Um, I tend to focus on the complexities of celebrating diversity and togetherness within the framework of traditional um, curriculum, especially Charlotte Mason curriculum. And I have a particular interest in normalizing the multicultural experiences in childhood so that today's children don't have to struggle as much to close gaps between people groups as we do right now. So being asked to speak with you today is a real treat for me, and I definitely hope that you are enriched by our time together. Um, Our topic today is books as mirrors and windows, Um, but but before we get into the specifics, I would really like to give you a little bit of background information so you can understand how I arrived at where I am today. So several years ago, my oldest daughter began exhibiting some really troubling signs, all related to the way she felt about her looks. She increasingly began to talk about skin color and make frequent comments about being different from everyone else around her. So this was completely shocking for me and my husband because we had gone out of our way not to talk about race or make a big deal about skin color. We really wanted to raise our children to look at people's hearts and not what was on the outside. So her hyper focus on the outside really felt like a bit of a gut punch. So her issues manifested in many ways, like hiding her black dolls because she said that the white ones were the pretty ones, hating her curly hair and being constantly upset when it was braided. Um, She would repeatedly ask me why she was the only child with a brown mom. And as strange as that sounds, when I really thought about it, I could understand her confusion because all of the white children in her life had white moms and most of the few brown children she knew were either biracial or adopted and they had white moms too. And apparently she just didn't understand, you know, kind of why she was the only one with this brown mom. She would also count brown skinned people everywhere we went. So she had no concept of race. 
So to her, brown was not necessarily African-American. It was just anyone who wasn't white. Um, so she would ask whether she would be the only brown child at activities. Will I be the only one at this birthday party? Will I be the only one in this ballet class? And um, she would do this every time we got ready to leave the house. So that's there. That's her there on the left, along with my other children. And um, I share these examples of her behavior with you now um, even though when I listen to myself, I'm like, these are blaring alarms. What was I thinking? But at the time, I really felt like she would outgrow it. And I focused on kind of the same story of telling her that we all are similar. Um, we're all the same on the inside. Um, and, you know, God made us all the way that we are in his image and the outside doesn't matter or so on. These types of things. That's what I was telling her. But rather than improving, she only got worse over time. And it would take hours today for me to share everything that happened. But I'll skip to the one last pivotal point for us. Um, one day we went on a field trip to a historical living history museum. And most of the activities were outdoors. It was in rural Georgia, um, a couple hours away from where we live. And there was only one bathroom there. So before we got on the road at the end of the day to head back home, my daughter and I went to use the restroom while my friend watched all of our littles outside. And there was a really long line and only a couple of stalls. So we spent an incredibly long time watching people go in and out of the stalls and wash their hands, dry their hands and walk out the door. So when it was finally my little girl's turn, she went to the bathroom and she washed her hands. But when she went to put her hands under the automatic dryer, nothing happened. So she tried to shift her hands in all different directions to get the dryer to come on. And again, nothing happened. I'm sure you've all, you know, we've all experienced that before trying to get the little trigger to come on. Um, but for whatever reason, it wouldn't work for her that day. Her little hands just weren't, weren't triggering it. Um, but instead of shrugging it off or grabbing some paper towels, she got very upset and loudly in this very quiet bathroom full of all white people in rural Georgia, she says, well, I guess those dryers only work for white people. And I was mortified. Needless to say, I let my hands air dry as I quickly ushered her out into the car. And when we got into our van, I wanted to say, what is wrong with you? But I didn't want to scare her into silence. And what I really wanted more than anything was to know the truth. So very calmly, I pulled myself together and I said, honey, I noticed that you had a hard time in the bathroom. What was going on? And what she said changed me forever. She said, well, the dryer worked for all of the white people and wouldn't work for me because they made everything and they know how everything works. And knowing that we were in the middle of a watershed moment, I quickly followed up with, why do you say that? And she said, because you said we learn important stuff in our school books and they only have white people in them. And in that moment, my heart shattered into a million pieces. And I realized that in my attempt to not make a big deal about skin color or to be colorblind, I made her feel as though she were invisible and that people like her or like us didn't matter. 
I could go on with stories like this all day, but it's really just more of the same. I knew something had to be done before my beautiful little girl became permanently lost in this spiral of self-hatred. And as I worked to unpack how she arrived at the conclusion that Black people didn't know or do much, I realized that my daughter's life looked a lot like this. And I'm sure some of you right now are feeling like this picture isn't a big deal, but for most of us, it looks peculiar and unexpected. Yet this is how my little girl saw life, but in reverse. In fact, I also grew up that way. But for some reason, I let my desire for things to be perfect in the world cloud my judgment when determining how to raise my own daughter. I tried to raise her to live in the world I wished we were living in instead of the world she was actually experiencing. My child was determined to be seen and her insistence revealed that I was perpetuating the same cultural emptiness that I had experienced as a schoolgirl. And I began seriously studying the concept of cultural representation in literature and my research led me to an article written by Nancy Larrick former president of the International Reading Association, in which she highlighted that millions of non-white children are learning to read and to understand the American way of life in books which either omit them entirely or scarcely mention them. There is no need to elaborate upon the damage, much of it irreparable, to the Black child's personality. Now, this is a spot on assessment of what's happening in many home based public and private learning environments today. So imagine my surprise when I looked at the bottom of the page and saw that the article I was reading was published in 1965. So as I continued to seriously study this idea, I came across some more contemporary work from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop and her writing on the concept of books as mirrors. So the more I researched, the more sense it all made. And she wrote, when children cannot find themselves reflected in the books they read, or when the images they see are distorted, negative or laughable, they learn a powerful lesson about how they are devalued in the society of which they are a part. And so as soon as I read that, I recognized the issue taking root in my own home. And as I began to share in more public forums, I, I found that children in homes and classrooms everywhere were lacking literary mirrors. So a mirror is a book that reflects a child's own culture or personhood and helps build their identity. In literary mirrors, children can find themselves and their families and communities reflected and valued. When reading books where they see characters like themselves moving through the world, they feel a sense of belonging. So over a decade before I was born, Experts like Larrick raised the alarm that something was terribly broken in our children's literary world, yet I grew up with very few books as mirrors. 25 years later, uh, Sims Bishop sounded an identical alarm, but my daughter was still living without substantial mirrors. And now today, new voices are ringing cowbells, laying on the horn, screaming into the mic and banging their heads against the wall while children carry on searching for their reflections in vain. 
So what exactly is a mirror? A mirror is a book that reflects a child's own culture or personhood, as we mentioned a minute ago. And in our case, in my family's case, the mirrors that were missing most were the books uh, that reflected Black culture, books with Black characters or about Black people. Um, in other cases, uh, the mirrors that could be missing in a certain home could be books that reflect some other culture or another aspect of a child's personhood. It might not be related to race or ethnicity at all. And before I go on, I want to address one question that always comes up when I speak, and that is, what about white children? Do they need literary mirrors? And to that, I say, absolutely, all children need and deserve to have mirrors. And um, we're not as focused on that aspect today because the traditional book lists for American school children already do a really good job of reflecting back to white children in that aspect of their personhood or their identity. Um, my call today is not one to supplant the stories of white people, but rather to expand the stories our children are reading um, to include people of color. And I think that that will present a healthier and more accurate view of the world for our children. So if our curricula are to be truly beautiful, they must reflect the vibrant and diverse 21st century world in which we live. And it shouldn't really be a matter of like this or that, but it should be this and that. And uh, if we could look here for, for a moment, you're gonna see this picture here from the Cooperative Children's Book Center, CCBC. And they released the number of children's books by and about Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC. And the, of the books received from U.S. publishers in 2018, these numbers show the percentage of total books that had at least one primary character identified as belonging to one of the following groups. So there has been some small progress since this data was presented, but as the most recent CCBC report points out, taken together books about white children, talking bears, trucks, monsters, potatoes, et cetera, represent nearly three quarters or 71% of children's and young adult books published. So I would even take this a step further and point out that within the small subset of books featuring Black, Indigenous, and people of color characters, many of the stories revolve around brokenness. So author and illustrator Christopher Myers aptly named this landscape an apartheid of literature. He describes this as a place where characters of color are limited to the townships of occasional historical books that concern themselves with the legacies of civil rights and slavery, but are never given a pass card to traverse the lands of adventure, curiosity, imagination, or personal growth. So right there, Myers challenges us to broaden our assumptions that children need mirrors merely for the sake of reflection, suggesting that books integrated into children's worldview aren't merely mirrors. He says that they become maps. And if we follow his premise of books as maps, what path 
are our children led down when every road that deals with people of color leads to enslave lead to enslave leads to enslavement and strife, prejudice and poverty. So Taiwanese children's author Grace Lin addressed this in her TEDx talk on adding diversity to a child's bookshelf. As she described what happens when you never see anyone in a book who looks like you, she said this about her childhood. There was nobody who looked like me anywhere. There was nobody that looked like me in school. There was nobody that looked like me in the movies. There was nobody who looked like me on TV or in the magazines. And most importantly, there was nobody that looked like me in the books that I loved. How could I create any vision to share with the world when I had never even looked at myself? My books are the books I wish I had when I was a child. And for those who don't know Grace Lynn, her novel, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, has been called a Chinese Wizard of Oz, and Lynn calls her main character, Min Li, an Asian Dorothy. The book won a Newbery Honor Award. So this is an example of the importance of the hashtag own voices movement. Lynn created the mirror she wishes she'd had when she was a little girl. Hashtag own voices is a term coined by the writer Corinne Divis, and it refers to an author from a marginalized, marginalized or underrepresented group writing about their own experiences from their own perspective, rather than someone from an outside perspective writing as a character from an underrepresented group. So Kayla Whaley from Disability and Kid Lit explains that even when portrayals of diverse characters by majority group authors are respectfully and accurately done, there's an extra degree of nuance and authority that comes with writing from lived experience. Those books that are hashtag own voices have an added richness to them precisely because the author shares an identity with the character. The author has the deepest possible understanding of the intricacies, the joys, the difficulties, the pride, the frustration, and every other possible facet of that particular life because the author has actually lived it. So if we go back to the data we were looking at in the other chart, you can see here that that same data has been um, broken down by own voices. For example, in the 10% of children's books that had significant African or African-American content, just under half of them were written by Black people. So most of them were not. Um, there's much debate on whether the diverse books um, on our home library shelves should be written by own voices authors exclusively. And um, there, I, I personally believe that we should prioritize the own voices stories when possible, but just like there can be insensitive, inaccurate, or poorly written own voices stories, there also can be well-written, respectful narratives by other authors who can sensitively and authentically navigate the stories of other people. Um, so I prioritize own voices for my own children and for the recommendations I make for families and school libraries, but I don't make a hard and fast rule because there are some very beautiful exceptions that we would miss out on. And those stories are not just those from people of different cultures. We're often focused on mirrors for children of color and rightfully so, 
But that doesn't mean that ethnicity is the only thing that needs to be reflected in a mirror. Our students' books can also be missing other important aspects of their personhood. And this is an important consideration, especially for white parents in predominantly um, white communities who may feel that they can immediately check the mirror box with no additional effort. Um, the parts of our children's lives that threaten their sense of self and security with their place in the world, those are the areas where they're best served with additional mirrors. And some of these include physical or developmental, behavioral and emotional disabilities or special needs, um, religious differences or approaches to spiritual practices, varying types of family structures or living situations, significant life changes or experiences such as divorce, remarriage, or death, and foster care, custodial changes, surrogacy, or adoption. These are all areas where children of all backgrounds will benefit from knowing that they are seen and valued. And for the sake of time, I'm going to provide examples specifically from the perspective of mirrors for Black children, but please know that that same richness can, can and should be applied to the stories of other people of color and those living in various circumstances. So what exactly are we to look for in literary mirrors? So my recommendation is that you fill your bookshelves and your baskets and your carts and all of that with a wide variety of options according to the needs and circumstances of your students. For my children, I have a particular focus on these categories of mirrors. So pictures and stories of melanated children having, oh no, my slides are off a little bit. These are the ones I just went through with you. So the literary mirrors, I, I try to aim for pictures and stories of melanated children having fun, playing and interacting with their families and environments in positive ways. Um, biographies showcasing women and people of color who have lived exciting lives or made impactful contributions to their communi communities. Historical fiction that shares the viewpoints and authentic experiences of Black people across various time periods and throughout major historical events. Stories that include cultural signals or cultural head nods. Um, these are the elements that kind of give a wink and a head nod to the African-American experience through illustrations or photographs and descriptions of food, music, language, and interactions that children recognize as familiar. Contemporary novels that feature Black characters but are not about being Black. So books about being Black are great, but all of the books shouldn't be about being Black. Black people do all the same things um, that other people do. And so sometimes just having books where people are doing what they do and it's normal life and the plot or the main idea of the book isn't related to the fact that this family or this person is Black. And then nonfiction books by or about women of color highlighting their subject matter expertise in various fields of study. Um, it could be entrepreneurship or visual and performing arts, um, activism, business, science, writing, technology, leadership, travel, anything. And then finally, poetry books that reflect our culture and our voices through verse and imagery. So integrating mirrors like this into the home is an ongoing but very rewarding job. But once you've kind of gained traction in this area, 
it's now time to pull in the literary windows. So longtime educator Emily Stiles wrote extensively about the need for representation in her role as co-director for the National Seed Project. Specifically, she has shared that it's limiting and inaccurate to only educate our children provincially when they must live their lives in a global context, facing vast differences and awesome similarities. They must learn early and often about the valid framing of both windows and mirrors for a balanced ecological sense of their place in the world. So here we see the introduction of another category of books, literary windows. Books as windows are more complex than books as mirrors. Windows provide a realistic view of how others live while sim simultaneously situating children within the context of a wider world. So students need to learn about how other people conduct themselves in the world and they have to understand how they might fit in to all of that. So we have to include other voices and images in our students' books so they have a window into the range of possibilities in the world. It's important that all of our children learn to approach similarities and differences in culture, ethnicity, and skin color. And as parents, that responsibility and honor lies squarely in our court. So we're definitely asking a lot of our children's books, but things have been the way they are for so long that we must be extraordinarily intentional if we wish, wish to see lasting change. Um, some of what we must over overcome is so embedded into what we consider, stand consider standard or normal that if we're not careful, will overlook opportunities to infuse our home bookshelves with necessary windows. So Emily Stiles again clarifies the issue when she writes, white males find in the house of curriculum many mirrors to look in and few windows which frame others' lives. Women and men of color, on the other hand, find almost <clears throat> no mirrors of themselves in the house of curriculum. For them, it is often all windows. White males are thereby encouraged to be solipsistic or self-centered, and the rest of us to feel uncertain that we truly exist. In Western education, the gendered um, perspective of the white male has presented itself as universal for so long that the limitations of this curriculum are often still invisible. This framing of windows is important for all children, regardless of background, but it's critical for white children because so much of what they read and watch and listen to um, and what they see is created in their image. Many white children have little to no meaningful interaction with communities of color. The reasons for this may be geographical or economic and may or may not be intentional, but regardless of the explanations, it's safe to say that there is a significant need for literary windows <clears throat> to help fill the gaps that can so easily widen between white children and children of color. And boys specifically need to be offered windows that highlight the fullness of the lives of girls and women. So what precisely or exactly is a window? There's no strict prescription for what constitutes a window because priorities and perspectives vary across households and backgrounds. 
So for example, these are the history mirrors for the past couple of years for my own children. And books like these would definitely serve as mirrors for any African-American children um, that you may have in your home or in a co-op that you're doing or um, that you work with in some capacity. But this very same selection of books would be windows for many white children in your, you, you know, whether that's your children or other children that you encounter. So mirrors and windows are the same books. Mirrors are windows and windows are mirrors. It's the child's perspective that determines which is which. And that's one of the things I love best about this um, concept of literary mirrors and windows because it's not like we're saying these people need these books and these people need these books. It's that all the kids need all of these types of books, but it just depends on how they see the book as to whether we consider it a mirror or whether we consider it a window. So many of the best selections of windows fall into the following categories. Um, a day in the life type books. Those are books that show how children in other countries or even regions of our own country or our neighboring country or our neighbors in our communities. It shows how they, um, they live their lives each day and these books are invaluable. It's easy for this category of books, however, to become trite. So seek authentic voices when possible and choose dignity over tokenism and stereotypes in every case. So another category of windows um, or books where I, I say family is everything. These family focused stories offer ample opportunity for children to see the many similarities between their loved ones and others. So the dynamic um, of seeing those similarities is just as important as embracing differences. So family-centered books are also where we can most easily witness joy expressed through food and music, clothing and rhythms and traditions. And this gives children a vivid sense of our common humanity and our shared values. Um, a picture is worth a thousand words. Photographs and illustrations communicate things that authors often leave unsaid. They can show the variety of dress, skin color, hairstyles, home decor, food, leisure, transportation, and more. Books featuring quality pictures are perfect for strewing around the house for children to happen upon and flip through. You also have folk tales. These legends or myths passed down through generations of people within a culture or cross-culturally are unique ways to understand the core beliefs of a people's ancestors. And the storytelling traditions of many groups hold a rich heritage of experiences on which some of their modern views may rest. Another category, biographies and autobiographies or memoirs. It's nearly impossible to write about a person's life without including details on the world around them. So biographies and autobiographies often shed light on how people live and maybe what they received or gave to those around them. Provides day in the life glimpses that are contextualized within a broader historical perspective. So I think these books are gold mines for learning about people and the spaces in which they operate. And then we bring up that poetry again. Um, I'm not sure that any other form of art so quickly and thoroughly communicates the beliefs and customs and dreams of a person or group of people. Thoughts shared in verse explore what the poet may find familiar, 
what she loves, the beauty or pain she sees in her world, and even her opinions on real life occurrences. I think that poetry is a near perfect window. You have a historical fiction. It's rooted in reality, but not hemmed in by factual occurrence. So historical fiction often brings humanity to the triumph and credibly redeems tragedy. Some of these books are a really gentle way to explore tough topics with our children, things that may be difficult for them to understand or to um, assimilate with some of their thoughts, depending on their age. And while we're introducing these tough topics through historical fiction, um, our, our children can be spurred to emulate heroes and they may be motivated to ensure that some parts of history don't repeat themselves on their watch. You also have fantasy and science fiction. Characters of color are vastly underrepresented in fantasy, sci-fi, and speculative fiction. That's a genre that comprises books and other worlds involving magical or futuristic or imagined features. These highly creative stories rarely contain BIPOC voices, and when they do, the characters are most often relegated to minor roles or they're killed off early in the story. Um, but seeing people of color playing a role in imaginative work, especially when an author is also a person of color, erodes the stereotypes surrounding this type of literature and other aspects of creative life. And these books are just fun. You have passion projects, exposing children early and often to BIPOC leaders and historical figures who are passionate about their chosen vocation is a way to connect windows to your child's natural interests. A child interested in the work of architect Frank Lloyd Wright, for example, as I was as a child, um, would be intrigued by books about Maya Lin or Zaha Hadid or Philip Freelon. Chinese American, British Iraqi, and African American architects whose work can be seen in iconic spaces around the world. Children who enjoy fashion design or first ladies could read about Anne Cole, Cole Lowe, a black fashion designer who made Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding dress among other classic pieces. Whatever our children's passions, we can help expand their worldview by showing them that talent and determination thrive across all colors and cultures. You have primary sources. I really like this because books containing copies of primary sources like speeches and interviews and documents and letters are often windows that speak entirely for themselves. Resources like these can provide more truthful and accurate accounts of people's perspectives during a particular time. And then finally, you have uh, windows that allow us to look beyond culture. In addition to the books highlighting the lives of different ethnicities, um, titles that give voice to other less explored perspectives or experiences are critical. So windows do transcend race, just like mirrors, and they should be broad enough to uncover more than our limited interpretations of personhood. So stories of refugees, immigrants, people living in poverty, and individuals with differing abilities are examples of stories that often go completely unheard. Um, books on each of those offers innumerable opportunity or offer innumerable opportunities to experience life through the eyes of another person.
And these types of books help pave the way for helping our children celebrate and appreciate differences. But a critical consideration when thinking of books as windows is the need to guide our children um, as they're looking and seeing the vast similarities that particular cultures may share. So I guess what I'm saying is when we're talking about all of these different mirrors and the windows and these diverse and inclusive books, if we're not careful, our children can begin to hyper-focus on all the differences between themselves and people who look different rather than thinking of, also thinking of these vast similarities. So I have an example of that in my own life. Um, where um, my brother years ago told us that he was going to propose to his girlfriend, Julie, and we affectionately call her Jules. And we were happy, we all loved Jules. And um, so I thought, okay, you know, that's great. They're gonna go have a small wedding or, you know, elope, <clears throat> excuse me, elope or something. And no, he was like, no, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna have a huge, huge wedding. And I was concerned about this because Julie is white and her family is white. And obviously my brother is black. And so I was like, I don't know, do you really want to have this big, huge wedding? <coughs> Excuse me, with all of these people? Because our culture is so different than hers. And I know her immediate family and our immediate family, um, <coughs> excuse me, get along really well. But when you look beyond that, how is it going to be having all of these people? I said, you know, we're black. There are a lot of us, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, aunt, great aunts and great uncles, and then family friends who aren't even aunts and uncles, but we call them that anyway. And we're boisterous. Um, we're louder than probably her family. Um, in our family, the matriarchs are in charge and they love fiercely, but they can be really bossy and sometimes they don't hold their tongues. And not that we don't have patriarchs, but for some reason, the matriarchs outlived them. And black weddings have requirements. There needs to be an obnoxious amount of really, really good food. Um, and we need music, good music. And folks are gonna be late. So I was really concerned about the impression this was going to make on my soon-to-be sister-in-law's family. And I asked him, do you really want to do this? And they were like, yes, we're going for it. So we go, you know, months later to the wedding ceremony and that went off without a hitch. Everything was good. And then we move, get in our cars and drive to the next location for the reception. And as I was walking into the building, I hear all of this commotion and someone, you know, it sounds like somebody is just like, ah. And I was like, oh my gosh, here it is. I told them that we shouldn't do this. It's already starting. And, you know, Julie's family is going to be mortified. And as I walked further down the hall, I realized that all that racket was actually coming from Julie's grandmother. And so her little Italian grandmother was telling somebody about all the things at all the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so much like our grandmothers. And then I hear her cousins telling the DJ, turn the music up and play this and play that. And I see that her family has brought additional food to add to the catering food because they were afraid that there wouldn't be enough or that it wouldn't taste right. Um, and all of these things that are happening, she has a ton of family. They're really loud. And um, I thought to myself, wow, there is a fine line between black and Italian. And I had no idea. And so here I was thinking that 
there were these cultural markers that only applied to Black culture. And in reality, they very much applied to Jules' white family as well. And so rather than thinking of the possible similarities that our families would hold, I had immediately gone to, oh, there are going to be all these differences. So that's just one example of how our, our imaginations can run away from us if we allow that to be the case. And so we want to make sure that the messages our children are receiving through their books and other lessons are balanced. Um, so people are different and acknowledging and appreciating those differences is crucial. But through a window, the children will also see all of these um, examples of how in many respects people are the same. Um, recognizing and laughing about those similarities brings us closer. So um, Charlotte Mason, a 19th century British educator, for those who aren't familiar with her, offered us a poignant reminder on this point. Even a hundred years ago, she realized the need to balance both similarities and differences. And she said, perhaps the gravest defect in school curricula is that they fail to give a comprehensive, intelligent, and interesting introduction to history to leave off or even to begin with the history of our own country is fatal. We cannot live sanely unless we know that other peoples are as we are with a difference, that their history is as ours with a difference, that they too have been represented by their poets and their artists, that they too have their literature and their national life. We have been asleep and our waking is rather terrible. So I think we're experiencing the growing pains of this awakening within our schools and homes and broader society today as we grapple with what and how to teach our children the truth without demonizing or idolizing those who came before us. So the question becomes, how much is enough? How do we know when we have furnished our home with enough windows? For me, the number of windows illuminating our home library increased as I saw their beneficial effects on my children, and my interest in this area really grew. But there's no such thing as a perfect library. And while I may not have a magic number that constitutes a worthy collection, I do know that our aims must be broader than the single story. You can't just read a book about a kid in Thailand and check the Asian box or a girl in Kenya and check the African box or even a boy in a wheelchair and check the disability box. Our commitment involves repeated exposure to various voices and characters, even within the same culture or experience. African-American experiences are diverse and unique. The Black experiences of the South do not necessarily reflect those of the North, nor do inner city situations parallel rural settings. Make sure your classroom library reflects this diversity as well as that of Blacks living in places such as the Caribbean, Africa, and Great Britain, explained late children's illustrator Floyd Cooper. Even within a single culture, there are many stories to be told and explored. So when reading mirror books, it's easy for the reader to recognize like authenticity and to quickly sniff out stereotypes and tokenism. This is not the case when books are windows. 
the inherent distance between the reader and the lived experiences of the protagonist or subject can complicate matters. The risk is that our children may not realize what they don't know and at times they may mistake a single story for the story of a people. Author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie describes the problem of the single story and she explains, the single story creates stereotypes and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. The consequence of the single story is this, it robs people of dignity. It makes the recognition of our equal humanity difficult. The problem of the single story isn't resolved simply by reading multiple books about the same people group. You could read your child 10 books about indigenous peoples, but if all the books focus on a single nation or worse yet, there's no mention of differences between them or even their existence today, then you may be unintentionally, unintentionally perpetuating the single story. When we expose children to a one-dimensional story about a group of people, it limits their understanding of who people truly are. I share much of what I'm speaking about today on my website, heritagemom.com and on Instagram at heritagemomblog. And it was there that I recently re received a comment from a woman expressing her concerns about the entire collapse of America. And she said this in a conversation that we were having about how we should approach including the voices of people of color in our curriculum. And I know that she didn't mean to come across as she did, I hope, but her sentiments are at the root of what many feel, that a move away from an all white curriculum is a move away from Americana. And, you know, <laughs> the thing is that it actually would be scary if it were true. But the most patriotic people in the house are those who want to include all of our country's people because they recognize that to love a country is to love its people, including the indigenous peoples who were here first, descendants of the enslaved on whose backs this country was built, and the immigrants from all over the world, not just Western European, not just Western European countries, who have joined in to make our country what it is today. So I was recently talking to a wise friend about this and she reminded me that we are neither to make an idol of sameness nor of difference. So when we look at living books, um, this brings up some new uh, questions that we may have. And uh, we've established the case for providing mirrors and windows, but the use of living books is a cornerstone for many of us who are homeschooling our children or teaching them at home. We want quality literature, um, and it's prevalent, that term living books in a Charlotte Mason education, but even outside of that realm. So in a perfect world, we would find a plethora of living mirrors and windows and serve them up to our children with a cherry on top. Um, but this is not a perfect world. And we're living in the midst of a literary drought in a lot of ways. There is a shortage of living books featuring black and brown characters, yet it's incredibly unhealthy, incredibly unhealthy for children to solely read about the lives of white fictional characters and the trials and contributions of white historic figures. 
But what about the wonderful history books, the living history books featuring Black people um, living during enslavement and the Civil War, Jim Crow and the Civil Rights Movement? Those are all an especially important part of an edu any education, and they do belong on our home library shelves. But the struggle and trauma of the enslaved and formerly enslaved, the poor or downtrodden, cannot possibly comprise the sum total of our children's black mirrors and windows. We could spend the rest of the day today probably discussing why there aren't more black and brown books in the traditional living books canon, but we don't have the time. So if you'll accept for a moment that what I'm saying is true, then we have an issue because we need the mirrors and windows, but we also want them to be living books. But with our mainstream understanding of living books, there aren't enough of them with brown and black people in them, especially when we move beyond the enslavement um, period and you know the tumultuous years that followed. So this was something I really wrestled with for a long time. And I wanna share with you where I landed. So when we think about giving our children the best books, um, we have to figure out what that would mean. Because I think after our discussion of mirrors and windows, I would argue that an entire library full of only white books is not the best. And maybe we should be very careful about only evaluating each book individually without stepping back to include an evaluation of the entire feast. The team with the best player doesn't always win the championship because the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And any of us who love to entertain or be entertained know that the best dinner party meal or feast isn't the one with the best appetizer separately and then the best side item separately and the best entree and the best dessert all considered separately, no. That, that doesn't work. There has to be synergy among the flavors and textures. We have to think of color and beauty as we set the table. We have to consider our guests and any dietary needs they may have because hospitality is crucial. We even have to take the weather into account. So there's a reason that we don't serve hot creamy potato soup and crusty bread in July in the Southern United States. Even if that potato soup is the absolute best meal that that chef could make. So the question becomes, is the best thing to serve at a dinner party the best of each type of food? Or is it the best of an, uh, or is the best an amalgamation of foods that come together to provide your guests with the best experience? The way many of us have approached our children's education, myself included, may be doing a disservice to their personhood without the mirrors and could be a thorn in the eye of the Lord's command to love thy neighbor as thyself without the windows. So in addition, when you think about living books, um, you have to agree that there is some amount of subjectivity that comes into that. And um, I would say that some people feel that living books must only come from the golden age of children's literature, for instance. And um, 
I get that. Many of the books produced during that time are overwhelmingly beautiful stories. Um, Michelle Howard, Michelle Howard Miller, aka the Living Books Lady, aptly describes that time. She says it's a time, it was a time when such narrative books were the norm, and publishers esteemed the humanness of their readers, a la the Judeo-Christian ethic, through creamy paper. Generous spacing and drum roll, please. Breathtaking, handmade, evocative, artistic illustrations. Ah, a living book. Even the topics covered were of admirable, admirable breadth and depth. That high watermark has not been matched. So we rescue and read. And boy, do I love the books that she describes there. They are indeed scrumptious but they also are not enough. These books don't have multicultural equivalents. We can't just go find a black or brown understood Betsy at the used book sale. Alice in Wonderland was published in 1865, seven months after the end of the Civil War when it had been illegal for black people to read and write in most places. There is no classic Black Alice having adventures in a magical place. Heidi was published in 1880. And do you know what Black people were doing during that time? There is no classic Black Heidi running through the mountains picking flowers. The Secret Garden and Pollyanna were published later in 1911 and 1913. But even then, there simply is no classic equivalent with a Latina Mary Lennox and a Korean Pollyanna. So if we insist that a living book must also be an old book, we are submitting ourselves to mostly white books. And don't get me wrong, we've read these traditional classics and our shelves you know, are adorned with them and they've made some wonderful read aloud times in our homes. But again, they are not enough. So while it's true that we don't have a Black Heidi, we do have beautiful books. We have books that move us, we have books that stretch us, and we have books that are just fun. There are fiction books with black and brown characters and nonfiction books about the lives and accomplishments of people of color. And though many aren't going to match the literary sensibilities and style of the golden age, these books will sustain our children's hearts as they journey through childhood. And isn't that living? So maybe we've interpreted or defined living books more narrowly than we ought. And we should consider that many of the more diverse modern books are in fact living, even if they're not yet classics or may never become classics. But also there are many books that are neither living nor twaddle as Charlotte Mason would call it. Um, and I've chosen to line my children's shelves with them alongside many traditional living books as part of the raising and training of a wholehearted child. And I'm here today because I hope that you'll consider this for your home as well. When we consider the barriers that exist for our children, the chief roadblocks that prevent them from getting all of this from their books, the gatekeepers, that's us. Um, and most often we are prevented from spreading a wide literary feast because of our own beauty sense, our own ideals of what is true 
good and beautiful. Keep us from seeing the fullness of that which is right and honorable. Charlotte Mason called this the demon of exclusiveness. She wrote of it in her book, Ourselves. And I would like to leave you with just a portion of her words. She said, the beauty sense adds so much to the joy of life that it's not easy to see what danger attends it. Instead of accepting the relations, friends, and neighbors that God sends to us in the course of our lives, the devotee of beauty chooses for himself and cares to know only those people whose views of life are the same as his own. Of two things we must take heed. In the first place, we must not let any better than my neighbor notions get into our heads. And in the next, we must make it our business as much as in us lies to bring beauty to places where it is not. Bearing these two cautions in mind, the demon of exclusiveness need have no terror for us. So I hope you feel inspired to begin providing mirrors and windows for your students and to to dive in deeper if you've already started because our children need us to get this right. If you want to go further with this work, I have a book coming out or that just came out um, that covers mirrors and windows in much more depth along with other areas of celebrating diversity and kinship in our homes, schools and beyond. So thank you for taking the time to be here with me today. Um, I hope you'll grab a copy of the book to read, and, um, and I hope that you feel inspired to blow your shelves up with lots and lots of mirrors and windows. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us here on the Sunlight Connections podcast. You can also visit Sunlight Curriculum on social media, in our Sunlight app, or at sunlight.com. I am Sunny from Sunlight, reminding you to tune in next time.